As a kid, we moved a lot. By the time we were in high school, I had been uh, in eight schools, in six districts, in five cities, in three states. Now, it's not a military, military kid kind of moving around. Uh, probably some of you have experienced more than that. Uh, but it's kind of a lot of moving around. And if there's one thing I learned in all of that sort of moving around, it was that I had to be really adaptable. Um, I, I, I became quite the skilled social chameleon uh, as a kid. And uh, that was among all sorts of people in all sorts of contexts. Um, for part of my life, we lived in the barrio of Van Nuys. And like I was the, one of the very few white kids there. And so I had to learn to be adaptable among all sorts of folks. Uh, I had to be adaptable at school among the nerds, the jocks, uh, the popular kids, and, and what we called the stoners. Uh, some of you all know that phrase because I know you called them that too. Uh, I had to be adaptable among white, black, Latino, Asian. Um, and in all sorts of contexts, at church, at school, at home, in the neighborhood, if there's one thing that I had to learn as a kid is that I had to be adaptable. And that served me really pretty well. Uh, and in high school, uh, even though it was still sort of serving me well, <laughs> I began to realize that all of that flexibility and adaptability and moving around uh, created me this gnawing sense that I didn't really know where I belonged. I, I had this gnawing sense in high school that I didn't really know where I was from, where I belonged. Now, now don't get me wrong. I had a real strong sense of uh, my immediate family life. The fundamentals were in place. I knew who my family was. I knew where my home was. I knew God loved me. I knew all those fundamentals. Uh, but I realized, beginning in high school, that I had always felt this sense of lo longing to belong, this sort of gnawing sense that I didn't have a sense of my place, my people, my tribe, my context. wasn't sure where I came from in the world in a very real sense. I wanted a place like, like Cheers, you know, the... The, the movie, I'm sorry, the, 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 the TV show where, you know, everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came and you walk in and people say, Norm, you know, that, that kind of a place. So I wanted that for me. I wanted to walk into a place and people say, Norm, no, Scott. And let me tell you when I realized this. I remember that I began to realize this when in high school I heard about the concept of a church home. And I thought, a church home. I want that. <laughs> Bear in mind, I'm a preacher's kid. If there's anybody should have a sense of, of place and belonging at a church, it should have been me. But we hadn't stayed in any one place for any long enough period of time, so I had this sense that this was my church home. It took me moving away uh, to college, to realize, oh, where I had just been was my church home. We had been there for about seven years, 14, 15 total, as it would turn out. And, and in that seven years, I had built up in middle school and high school what had been my church home. And I didn't even realize it until I moved away to college to have this sense that my church home was this place I belonged. It was a place where people knew me. It was a place where they knew my name. It was a place where I knew them. And I had this very real sense, finally, that I belonged there, that I was accepted for who I was. In fact, it sort of got so bad. I had this real strong sense about a home church that when I came back in college, there'd be new people 
at church that didn't know me, and I'd think, how do you not know who I am? I'm Scott Wakefield. And why didn't the rest of you tell this person who I am? I mean, obviously that was some college ego or ego. But some of that was this actual strong sense of these are my people, I belong here, this is my place, I'm known and loved here. Isn't that something that really we all long for? In the deepest parts of who we are, we long to be known and loved. I mean, that's what, we, that's what we're called to be as a people. That's who we're called to be as families. That's what we're called to create in the context of these Christian relationships we have. A place where we are fully known and fully loved. That's why earlier in worship, we had what we call the greeting time. Lots of churches do this. It's a time when we say, hey, stand up and uh, turn to your neighbors, say hi, acknowledge that uh, people are around you, and uh, let's just kind of say, hey, we're in this together. It's a greeting time that kind of acknowledges that. Now, I know, by the way, sidebar, that you know, for the greeting time, there are a couple different kinds of reactions to this, typically. I know that for me personally, uh, if you can't tell by how I'm gesticulating, I'm an extrovert. And when, when we say greeting time, uh, it's like for me a moment of joy. It's like, I am so glad to see you. No, seriously, I am so glad to see you. Can we hug and be best friends? I mean, that's kind of the feeling. I know that for plenty of y'all who are introverts, it's not exactly that feeling of a moment of joy. It may be more like a moment of, uh, of terror almost. <laughs> a moment where maybe you're feeling something like, um, please don't touch me. Uh, please don't hug me. Please don't demand that I bond with you uh, because I might just have to punch you in the face. Now, I just, you know, kidding, of course, introverts. Please don't email me and reassure me that introverts are nice people. I know that they know that you are. So while we realize that different people have different responses to this greeting time, the reason we do it is because it names out loud as a part of our worship that people are here who need to be recognized. It's a way to communicate to one another. You have a name, you matter to God, you matter to us. That's what we don't create here. That's what we are trying to be here as a people. You matter to God, therefore you matter to me, to us. We all have this strong need to belong. A sense that we are known and loved and accepted. Now when we meet Adam and Eve in the Bible, they have a very strong sense of place, of belonging, of who they were, of why they existed, of what they were called to do, of their relationship with one another and their relationship with God. They had everything they could ever need and they were in perfect relationship with God. God, but as we know, immediately preceding the context, uh, the immediately preceding context of what we're about to read here in 8 through 10, they decided to trade all of that in in order to do life their own way, to seek their own wisdom for life in rebellion, in rebellion against God's provision for them. They said, God, your vision for our lives is creator of who we are. We trash that. We decide we want our own thing. We're going our own way. And when they sinned, when they sinned, what had been a very strong sense of purpose 
and belonging and their place in the world, what had been that became a place of confusion, uh, of distance. A place where they wasn't, where they weren't sure who they were, why they were there, what they were supposed to do. What had been clarity became confusion to them. A messed up confusion of purpose, of their sense of place, of their identity and who they were. Their hello my name is was messed up at that point. And so here we are in the context of Genesis 3. And don't miss the amazing thing that happens here in verses 8 through 10. Don't miss... What came next? Immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, immediately after they rebelled against God's vision for their lives, against God's provision for their lives. Think about this. Right on the heels of their fall from grace. In 3, 8 through 10, the Bible gives us a little glimpse into the heart of God, which is that God knows everything about you and loves you completely. You are fully known and fully loved. Let's read together Genesis 3, 8 through 10 here. Genesis 3, 8 through 10. We'll read the whole passage together and then we'll jump back in at, uh, at verse 8. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now jump back in, first half of verse 8. We're going to park here for a while, spend a lot of time on verse 8, just this first half, because it sets the tone for everything that follows for here. There are three large, uh, important points for us to make here in this first half of verse 8. First is this. This is sort of a context thing that we need to keep in mind when we read the first chapters of Genesis. The Bible communicates something here that maybe you've you've not thought about before, um, but it's important for us uh, to keep in mind as we jump into this section here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time proving this, but here it is in a nutshell for the note-takers. The The early chapters of Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis support the idea that that God has built this garden as a place where he can live with his creation. God has built this garden as a place where he can reside, dwell, live, have relationship with his creation. You see, God did not primarily uh, build the Garden of Eden so that Adam and Eve could live there. God did not create the heavens and the earth so that we could live here granted an obvious function of him creating all of that and putting us in it is that we get to live there. But that is not the primary reason he created the Garden of Eden in the first place. Let me say it this way. This is a little bit different way to say it. But the fact that the Bible is written to us does not have any bearing on whether or not the Bible is primarily about us. The fact that the Bible is written to us does not mean that the Bible is about us primarily. Uh, The Bible is about God. The whole arc of Scripture, the way that the big picture narrative of Scripture happens is about God's character and His purpose. And here in the early chapters of Genesis, His purpose in creating is so that He could live with His creation. Now this is important for us here because what it means is that if God made the world to live in it 
with his creation, with humanity, then at this point in the narrative, when we get to verse 8, it means that God is already present in the garden. That may sound like an obvious thing, but let it sink in for a bit here. God is already present in the garden. You see, when we come to verse 8, we read that. We read verse 8 and it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool, in the cool of the day. And we think, oh, isn't that nice? I mean, God came down from, he came down from this other place because he was somewhere else and he meets them in the garden there. Isn't that nice? He fin- finally just you know, shows up suddenly. That's kind of how we read it. But that's way too narrow a reading of what's going on here in Genesis. God is already present in the garden. He hasn't left and gone elsewhere and then come back. So when it says, when it says here that Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, it is a picture, note this, it is a picture immediately after Adam and Eve had sinned and God already knew they had sinned. It's a picture right on the heels of them rejecting him of God seeking an intimate fellowship with his creation. It's huge. This is huge for how we read this whole thing. And I'm not just making this up. We get this straight from the text. Look at verse 8 again for the second thing that we need to notice here. It says, They heard the sound of the Lord God. Now just think about this. This was a sound they'd heard before. Otherwise, how would they know that it was the sound of the Lord God? They would have certainly been familiar with the sounds of animals around them, birds chirping, etc. They would have been familiar with one another's voice. But it said that this was the sound of the Lord God. (laughs) Apparently, the sound of the Lord God was recognizable as the sound of the Lord God. Also notice, third thing here. Also notice that it was the sound of the Lord God walking. It was the sound of the Lord God walking. Now, now maybe this was the sound of, who knows, leaves rustling as he walked. Uh, maybe it was the sound of the Lord God whistling uh, as he came to find Adam and Eve. We don't really know. I'd like to think, as some do, that this was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, a pre-body-on-earth appearance of Jesus, which doesn't, you know, isn't as crazy as it sounds. There are other places uh, called Christophanies in the Old Testament where that happens. Uh, but, but frankly, we don't really know the exact form of, of what goes on here, which is to say Scripture tells us something that if we're asking the right questions, We'll, we'll see and we'll, we'll notice here. It says the, the sound of the Lord God walking. And what's significant about this is not all those questions that we sometimes ask of the text. What's significant about this is not that God maybe had legs or the mechanics or the nature of how he walked. Scripture doesn't care to tell us that. What it cares to tell us is that this word walking carries the connotation of being a habitual activity. The word walking here, in the Hebrew sense of how it's used, carries with it the connotation of a habitual activity. What is significant here is something is, is simply that God was doing something he had probably done before. He was coming in to their presence 
to have a stroll as he'd probably done before. So let's put the three things together that we've talked about so far. That God built this place so that he could have uh, relationships, so that he could live with his creation. Number two, they recognize the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. And number three, him walking in the garden was probably something he'd been doing. Something that he was in the habit of doing. So here's where we are in the narrative so far. This is super cool stuff. Right on the heels of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. Right on the heels of their rebellion against their own Creator with whom they had personal relationship, against whom they had sin. The scripture pictures for us that He is still seeking the intimate fellowship with them He had always enjoyed. Let that sink in. Right on the heels of their rejection of God's provision for them. Right on the heels of them looking at Him and saying, I can do my, my own way, thank you very much. Right on the heels of their sinful rebellion against Him for which they deserved to be banished forever. He is still seeking the intimate fellowship with them that He had always enjoyed. The rest of our passage bears it out. So here's the situation. Midway through verse 8. This is a moment they would have enjoyed. (laughs) The presence of their Creator coming to have a relationship with them, to talk in the cool of the day, to discuss what's going on in their work for Him. That perfect relationship that was was a moment that He had come and, and, and they had enjoyed and had excitement about that moment was not a moment like that this time. Look at halfway through verse 8 there. It says, it says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, but this time the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Earlier they had hid from each other, hidden from each other, now they were hiding from God. Earlier in Genesis, in 2.25, we're going to put this on screen. Earlier in Genesis, in 2.25, It says, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The next time we see this phrase, the man and his wife, it is here in 3.8 where it says this, the man and his wife hid themselves. Earlier they were both naked and not ashamed because their relationship with one another and with God was, was great. Everything was awesome. At this point now, they felt the need to hide not just from themselves, but also from God. They are pictured here in 3.8 as children who are hiding in shame from their father because the relationship was broken. I I know I stood in front of my parents many times with my head down, knowing I disappointed them, feeling that sense of shame, knowing that I had done wrong by my relationship with them. This is sort of the picture here. But notice how Scripture pictures who God is. They picture, uh, Scripture pictures Him as a gentle father who is seeking his own children, who is seeking a relationship 
with them. We all know full well that at this point, he could have just, in judgment, he could have just said, you have done what I told you not to do. You deserve to be cast out forever. But he doesn't respond that way, right on the heels of their rebellion. I mean, this is the perfect, sinless God of the universe. We know they deserve punishment, but notice that he approaches them in grace in a way that sought to repair the relationship with them. In other words, the relationship was God's first priority. Don't miss this. The relationship is always the first priority. Just look at verse 9. Even though Adam had hidden, even though he and his wife had hidden behind the trees of the garden, it says this, verse 9, first word, but. But. It says, but the Lord God called. Because it's a contrast to Adam and Eve's hiding. In other words, despite Adam and Eve's sense of shame, even though they wanted to run away, verse 9 says, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Verse 10, he said, Adam, to God, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Notice how God approaches this here. He asked a question that drew them out from behind the tree rather than driving them away. He could have said, "Uh, why are you hiding? It's not like I don't know you're back there. He could have drawn attention to the futility and the absolute silliness of trying to hide from omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, all-present God of the universe. He could have said, are you kidding me? He could have at that very moment brought the full weight and vengeance of sin, uh, of, of his full weight and vengeance against their sin. He could have said, I know exactly what you did. But notice what the text gives us instead. Instead, he seeks to repair his relationship with his own children. This is the heart of God given to us in the first chapters of the entire Bible immediately on the heels of their sin. John 10.3, super cool verse, says he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. God is a good shepherd. God is a good shepherd who cares for his flock, who looks after his children. Which is to say that what is revealed to us in the early chapters of Scripture is that if God is your true Father, you are adopted, you've risked relationship with him, then you are fully known and fully loved. This is super Super important truth for us to know. It's important truth for us to know because it speaks to our uh, fear. Our fear of becoming an outcast. We all know, (laughs) we all know what we deserve because of sin. It's important truth for us to know we're fully known and fully loved because it speaks to our fear of being an outcast. And that's, that's a fear that the evil one preys upon. It's a fear the evil one preys upon to make us feel distant and uncared for and like we don't belong. 
like we don't have a home, like we don't know our purpose, like we don't know whose we are. You see, one of the primary things that the Bible teaches us about the devil is that he accuses us. It calls him the accuser. And the accuser has given us many names to remind us of our failure before God. And when those names begin to sink in, those accusations begin to sink in to our hearts and to our minds, we begin to feel like, we begin to feel like, hello, my name is. And these are the things we call ourselves. Liar. Cheat. Thief. Glutton. Gossip. Idiot. Addict. Alcoholic. Adulterer. These are the ways we begin to think about ourselves. Add those kinds of things up together. And this is who we begin to say we are. Friends, in the early chapters of Genesis, right on the heels of the sin of Adam and Eve, right in the moment, God seeks them out for relationship. God's heart is gracious and merciful and loving. There's a real cool verse in 1 John 3. If you're a note taker, you're going to want to take down this passage. 1 John 3, 19 through 21. The amazing truth about God is that even though these kinds of things uh, might have been true, in other words, the amazing thing about God is He knows everything about you. And loves you nonetheless. And in this cool passage in 1 John 3, it talks about an encouragement to the children of God. It encourages the children of God to live with confidence merely because they are loved by God. To live with confidence merely because they are lived, loved by God. Not because they have earned enough goodness. Not because they are the opposite of these things. Not because they are perfect, not because they have worked their way toward that love, not because anything in and of themselves by itself put together has equaled enough to be loved by God, but because he loves you. Straight up. In this passage, it says, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, right here, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Verse 21 says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. God's heart is gracious and merciful and loving in a way that so far exceeds these titles, these accusations, our puny hearts. He is merciful and gracious and loving. 
in a way that so far exceeds these accusations and our puny hearts that condemn us. And yet he knows everything. That is why in verse 21 of that passage we just read, Jesus calls us, John calls us by our new name. Our new name is Beloved. Our new identity is loved by God. Who we are is much loved. Now, this isn't a word that we use a lot today. uh, But there's an interesting feature about this word and where it comes from that speaks to the truth we're talking about here today of being fully loved. The prefix be here can mean quite a few things. Uh, It comes from the root idea of completion, of a totality of something. (laughs) One of the descriptions is that that be prefix means from all sides, which is to say that we are now loved on all sides by the God who knows all things. (sighs) Unlike us, When God loves, it is completely, it is totally, in a way that needs nothing more, in a way that needs no further proof or justification. So if you call God Father, if you're adopted into His family, if you've risked a relationship with Him in trust, then friend, you are fully known and fully loved. Now think of what an incredible gift that is from God. God knows us and yet loves us completely. What's that have to do with the family of God? Of, of the corporate body, uh, the, the body of believers? Well, God gave us this gift. This gift of His love, and He entrusted us with it. With a responsibility to give it away. You see, love is a gift, friends, that we've been called to steward. So friends, the family of God, the church, is called to be a community, a network of people who know and love each other with the same kind of fullness with which God knows and loves us. And we want this place to communicate that you are fully known and fully loved. That's how you know you've found the family of God. And friends, there are too many broken lives. There are too many broken lives for us to waste time becoming another accusing voice in someone's head. The church must learn to love people as God has loved us. May we be people who love as fully as we are fully loved. May we be people who love as fully as we are fully loved. Let's pray, friends.